This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by an absolutely remarkable thing, the debut novel from vlogger, entrepreneur, and science communicator Hank Green. Booklist writes, At once funny, exciting, and a tad terrifying, this exploration of aliens and social media culture is bound to have wide appeal to readers interested in either theme. Learn more about the book over at hankgreen.com. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 327 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Peter F. Hamilton. He's the author of over a dozen novels, including Pandora Star, The Neutronium Alchemist, The Dreaming Void, and The Abyss Beyond Dreams, as well as the short story collections Manhattan in Reverse and A Second Chance at Eden. Ants will be speaking with him today about his latest book, Salvation, the first in an all-new space opera trilogy. And today's show is brought to you by an absolutely remarkable thing, the debut novel from Hank Green. And here's a description of the book. It says, April May is a recent art school graduate working long hours at a Manhattan-based startup. Coming home from work one day at 3 a.m., April stumbles across something extraordinary, a giant sculpture that looks like a 10-foot-tall transformer wearing a suit of samurai armor. Delighted, April and her friend Andy film a video with it, dubbing the sculpture Carl. The next day, April wakes up to a viral video and a new life. News quickly spreads that there are Carls in dozens of cities around the world, from Beijing to Buenos Aires, and April, as their first documentarian, finds herself at the center of an intense international media spotlight. Kirkus writes, Green applies wit, affection, and cultural intelligence to a comic sci-fi novel, a fun contemporary adventure that cares about who we are as humans, especially when faced with remarkable events. And Patrick Rothfuss says, Fun and full of truth. To be honest, I'm a little irritated at how good this book is. I don't need this kind of competition. So again, the book is called An Absolutely Remarkable Thing by Hank Green, and you can learn more over at hankgreen.com. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Peter F. Hamilton. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so your new book is called Salvation. So how'd this book come about? Um... It came about because I wanted to, to do something different. I've been writing in my uh, Commonwealth universe since about 2003, 2004. I think the first one came out. Um, and I, ha- I just have to do something different every now and then. I mean, there's, there's seven books in that series now. So I, I feel that's enough for the moment. Um, therefore, whole new universe, whole new set of characters, whole new problems for people. Uh, it was something different that I... I Wanted to do as a writer, just to keep fresh, I suppose. And those seven novels, they're long novels too. So we're not just talking about seven medium-sized novels. They are, they are above average, shall we say. <laughs> it's, it's something I'm known for, I'm afraid. And so, um, so tell us about constructing this new universe. Did you have any sort of uh, new things that you wanted to try out in particular? Yes, the, uh, the structure is very different. It's... Um, to give you a brief outline, it's it's set, I think, 200 years from now, um, and a an alien spaceship is found on the, the far edge of how far we've explored, and we get five people making up an assessment team are sent out to investigate this thing, see if it's a problem, see if it's a benefit, a hazard, whatever the heck it is. Um, now, as their journey progresses, each of them gets to tell their story, which builds up a picture of this world and the universe they live in. Uh, so by the time you get to the ship, uh, you understand all the problems and aspirations that everyone has. 
Right, and so the so you mentioned the structure, and there's so there's all, almost three different timelines in a way because there's the present that you mentioned, and then you said each character gets to tell their story. So there's flashbacks to you know the, to the re- very recent past, and then there are also these flash forwards where we see you know it's it's many years in the future. And yes, it is um, the the the, fo- the very far future ones are the consequence of of what happens when everyone reaches the ship. Um, now, they are set about 10,000 years into the future. So by the time of book three, uh, these two stories will have merged together. Uh, I wanted to do it this way because I felt it was unfair to the reader to sort of have two volumes, the first two volumes set 200 years from now, then suddenly switching 10,000 years in the future. Um, so I've done it this kind of split narrative structure to, to get around that. Well, that was one of Aristotle's theories of storytelling, right, is that you shouldn't uh, jump around in time too much if it isn't serving the story. And so, yeah, a, 10, 000, a sudden 10,000-year jump, uh, if you haven't been set up for that, yeah, w- would maybe uh, be disorienting for people. I feel so, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll, we'll talk about the, the pr- sort of the present of the book, which you mentioned is uh, around the year 2204, I think. And the there's this technology or this there's this company called Connection. Uh, so tell us about that. Connection Company is um, is the company that runs all the portals. Now the portals are a very specific way of getting around in the future. Um, I've done starships. I've done wormholes between planets uh, and stars. So I, I again wanted to do something different. A portal. Well, most people are familiar with a portal, but mine start off as. Uh, one block of, of solid-state circuitry, which is then split in two as it connects, i.e. it has a quantum spatial entanglement between it. So they become doors, uh, and there's only one pair, and you can walk between them however far apart they are. Now, the fun bit of that was saying, okay, we've we've got this system. How would it actually work on a practical day-to-day level? How would it affect our world? How would it change our transport? How would it change the way society is structured. So much of what we have today is is revolves around getting from one place to another, getting goods in and out of, of factories to shops. It all changes. And that that took me about six months to work out the, the minutiae, the absolute details of how it would change us. Right. And I thought that's one thing the book does really well is because I feel like, yeah, as you said, these sort of teleportation gateways are fairly common in science fiction. But a lot of times the rest of the world isn't changed that much. And I can tell you spent, yeah, six months going through all these. I'll, I'll just give some examples here. So uh, of things that I think are really inventive. So they have these interstellar spaceships and the rocket exhaust is sort of channeled through a, a, a teleportation portal. So the, so then the ship doesn't need any fuel. It's just kind of yeah. shooting out stuff going through this portal. Yes, you have one one part of the portal you just drop into the sun, and the other half is is the rocket engine on the starship. Um, no need for any fusion, antimatter, or anything. You also have them; they're getting rid of their garbage with these portals. They're doing carbon sequestration uh, with the portals. Yeah, um, it's it's the perfect solution to um, to the the mess we're currently making, if you like. Um, I do tend to reference that a bit. Um, yes. Why, why bother recycling, uh, or building up, you know, isolated landfills full of plutonium when you can just literally fling it off into space? And then I thought it was really one of these interesting second order effects is that now the bridges and highways, 
um, don't really serve any purpose. And so they're kind of being turned into parks and developments and the hotels, most of the hotels don't serve any purpose. And so they're being converted to apartments. I thought that's really, uh, yeah, really. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, if it, if it takes you two minutes to, to walk from, from where I am to, to where you are in America, um, what do I need a hotel for? I'll just come back and <laughs> sleep in my own bed at night. Um, there are still fabulous resorts and places like that, but the actual, you know, the, the idea of a businessman needing a hotel for the night. No, that's gone. Yeah. Did you ever read uh, Larry Niffin had a series of stories set in this universe in which there were these yes. cheap telephone teleporters? Yeah, they were. It's a you could dial. I think you could dial any other um, booth and just step into that. So mine is a little more rigid than than his system was. But yes, I remember Larry Niffin's system very well. One of the things I always thought was so clever about that is that he foresees, as you do, some of these second order effects where, where he has this um, phenomenon where people will all of a sudden decide to all show up in one city and kind of loot, trash the place and loot it and then all just escape back through the teleportation the, the flash mobs, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think his story about that started up with everyone suddenly wanted to go and see f- the phosphorescent sea, the um, the waves breaking on, on a tropical shore and they all fluoresce with the, the life in them. And that was a, I think that was the first one. You're testing my memory now. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since I read them too. But yeah, I, I, that 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 one story definitely sticks out in my mind, though. Yeah. Um, and then so then in this future, you have uh, the currency is called the watt dollar. Could you talk about that? Yes. Um, well, today we have the petrodollar, which is sort of a an underlying currency around the world. Um, and I, I, we've abandoned the gold standard long ago. Uh, basically, the economy, if you take it down to, to the fundamentals, is all about energy and its usage and how much energy costs. And again, with this portal technology, you just drop one portal into the sun uh, and put another one in what's called an MHD chamber, which uh, basically extracts energy from very high temperature plasma. So you have very, very cheap energy, as much as you want uh, all the time, and it's never going to run out. Therefore, that is that then becomes the fundamental from which everything is measured from, uh, which probably an economic an, an economist would sneer at that, but to me, it makes perfect sense. I mean, is because yeah, I'm not an economist, but my understanding is that when we went off the gold standard, then the money's—it's a what is it, floating currency or something? It, it's not really, um, you know, backed by anything material, but it's just sort of like everybody. There's this social uh, convention that everyone agrees to treat it as if it, you know, has value, and so therefore it does. Um, yes, I, th- I think. Well, currencies are mainly backed by national treasuries at the moment, aren't they? Which again is is the promise of, of future earnings from tax. It's all, it's all based on fairly insubstantial uh, agreements. But this, this currency, which the, the watt dollar cannot vary because the price is, is set by this energy-producing system. Therefore, it's, it's immutable, if you like. I mean, would you need teleportation gates in the sun to make that work? Or could you just have a, you know, a state that you can always turn in your dollar bills for uh you know um electricity grid credits or something and then that would be backing the currency i, I suppose so you're, you're going into economics here which i'm not an expert on um yes i would uh, i would say so i mean the same thing will possibly happen if we ever develop fusion power that will become a fundamental uh from which you you can always rely on yeah 
Uh, okay, so then another interesting idea, because the um, this future uh, in 2204, there are also some dystopian elements to it. Um, sort of, sort of, you know, not huge dystopian elements, but you you talk about like there are renditions are going on, and yes. when, uh, do you want to talk um, about that? Well, to to you and me, uh, this world 2204 would be fairly relaxed and easy. But as always, um, you've got a disparity of wealth, which always generates discontent. You also have the ability to almost terraform deserts, turn them back into, into parkland, into, into farms. Now, should we actually be doing that? It raises a huge moral question, and you always get extremists um, wanting to stop that kind of thing happening. Um, so, yes, there's still a lot of... of discontents, if you like, uh, and inevitably some of them turn to violence. Now, how you deal with that in the future um, can also be changed if you're starting to expand out into the into the planets, into the galaxies. Uh, this provides you with, with perfect prisons, if you like. Um, it's the humane solution to, to terrorism. It's just put them somewhere on a world where they can't escape and let them live together. Uh, so one of the things is that there's a, an interrogation and the, the, I forget if he's the FBI agent says that if you uh, want a public defender, you have to have insurance for it. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, um, well, over here in the, in the UK, we've, we've got the, the socialized health service, you, but people are now starting to take out health insurance as well, you know, for small small things that you have to wait a long time for the for the National Health Service to provide. Um, there's also the police are heavily stretched over here, so you might want to take out your own um, crime insurance uh, in the future if, if things get worse and worse. They don't have the resources to, to, to deal with low-level crime, certainly. So, yeah, this seemed like a, a plausible uh, way we might be going. It's not one I particularly hope we go down. But uh, if it happens, then, yeah, the, the money guys will jump in and, and make their profit as always. I always just love those sorts of details in science fiction stories where the, the this police officer is giving the Moran is, is basically reading the you know part of the Miranda thing. But then yeah. instead of, uh, you know, if you can't afford one, one will be provided for you by the state. It's, you know, you're, you're on your own. You know, you need some uh, insurance there. Yeah, the, the state provides just the very basic minimum. Uh, in, in this future, because they're trying to encourage people to, to leave. Uh, not everyone, they're trying to encourage the people on welfare or on the dole over here. Um, if they can get them to, to set up a homestead on a new planet, then, you know, that's a little bit less tax money that they've got to be raised, which always makes politicians popular. It's a, it's a kind of vicious circle. Yeah. There's also uh, something called the 28th Amendment. Ah, yes. Uh, for America, um, this is sort of predicting the rise of, of home printing to a, a degree that it's uh, not yet at. Um, I think we've had a few cases recently of, of people printing their own guns. Um, but if you're going to print really good guns, you need certain levels of steel uh, or metal. So do you have the right to do that at home? Uh, is it part of the, the current amendment, the right to bear arms? So it's it's introduced as a prospective new amendment that they can't stop you from buying the metal to print a perfect gun, which, I th again, I thought was a fairly logical conclusion. 
You say, uh, in his opinion, the AFA, American Fabrication Alliance, made the NRA look like a bunch of pussies when it came to strong-arming Washington. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's Alec, isn't it, who says that. He's, um, he doesn't mince his words, does Alec. <laughs> He's one of, my, one of my favorite characters. I mean, I, does he express your view that this would be a, not be a desirable situation, this uh, American Fabrication Alliance? I don't know. Um, it's always the question of, of liberty versus restriction, isn't it? If we've got to live together, you've got to have some limits. How far do you go? Um, it's it's the, the balance. I think the balance will always be in contention. You'll always get people saying, we have the right to do everything. And then you'll have people saying, well, hold on, that, that, you know, that, inflict on my rights as well if, if you have the right to make a gun and why should i make one to to counter that it's it's the same as the as the armaments argue that you have at the moment over there um i don't think that part of of politics is going to change at all but as always it'll be where where the line is drawn and that will probably vary according to administrations there was there were some limits mentioned in the book. I forget it was uranium. There was uranium and and something else. You're not allowed to uh, probably nerve gas. I th nerve think gas, yeah. <laughs> yes, which, which seems fairly reasonable to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so then another big aspect of this future world is that there's this movement called utopialism. So could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, again, uh, these portals open up open up space in a way it's not possible with um, rockets at the moment. So you've got a, not quite a land grab, but the asteroids can all be turned into habitats. You have a lot more living space and you have a lot more isolated living space. So it's this great dysphoria of ideas as much as, as religions or nations is that people with ideas of how they want to live slightly differently from us have got the freedom and the room to do so. Now, one of those um, fairly extreme views on this is uh, extreme liberalism, if you like, is um, that all inequality roots down into gender. Um, there will always be inequality between male and female and all the other genders we have these days. So they decided to solve this by tweaking the genetics so that everybody cycles between male and female so that you don't have that, that very basic um, inequality at the root of, of your society. And from that comes the ability to to distribute evenly because you don't have the whole factory setup and Wall Street setup that we have now. So it becomes, it's aspiring to be a uh, post-scarcity society, which of course some people enjoy, some people don't. Again, there are so many ways of being human, which in science fiction you can you can explore all these. Right, and so these people that are genetically engineered to cycle between male and female are called omnias. Yes, that's and, right. And throughout the book you use uh, pronouns for them, which is, I think, pronounced she and here, which are sort of a blending of she and he and um, his and her. Yes, and that was one of the aspects... Um, I looked into this quite a lot. There is no, at the moment, there is no um, agreement on the on the pronouns you can use. There are many, many variants. These seem to be reasonably widely used. They and them is, is another one. Some people prefer that. Um, so, I, yes, I chose the ones I chose because they, they seemed to be in, in widely used. I, um, I'm not an expert. Hmm. 
I mean, did you not go with they and them because it would just it would be confusing sometimes whether you're talking about the singular or the plural? Or that's what I felt. Yes, um, I felt we needed to go slightly beyond that. Uh, I mean, I know that's fairly prevalent at the moment, but these other terms are creeping in, and as I say, they, they will presumably become more more widespread in the future where where this is set. Whether it is those terms I've chosen, I, I don't know. But certainly, I think we will soon see language developing as as our understanding of gender changes. I mean, would you want to live in the utopian society? Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know. Um, you see, in the book, I made them made the society work, but it it now considers itself as superior to to everybody else, which is never a good thing. Um, it gives them a, a smugness that I probably don't don't share i would say i think there are, as i said there are many ways of doing this there was a a hint that some of the other societies are trying for this through a different way as well um but but that was the that was the predominant one at the time because you have a character named kandara i think and she has a lot of critiques of the utopian society um so, for example, they um, the, the idea, this idea that um, the children are genetically engineered to be omnias is compulsory, and she objects strongly to that idea. Yes, um, which is fair enough. Uh, you've, it's it's to make you commit to the society wholeheartedly. Um, you're not supposed to be able to just dip in when it's convenient, and then you know if you if you need a medical op, uh, you have that done by them, and then just okay, thanks, bye. You need to commit to the society, and that that was the way they locked people in. Again, that's something I don't really, I wouldn't really approve of if it ever happened in real life. So, in the uh, the far future storyline we mentioned, we see that. The the Omnias, the, the utopial society has become sort of the, the default human society. And Ah, uh, no, I don't want to do spoilers. Um but you've only seen a very small in, in Salvation you have only seen a very small aspect of future society. By volume three you you get to see a lot more of it. So um so no, sorry, can't do spoilers on that. Uh but uh, we, we could talk about the stuff that happens in the early chapters. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's certainly that the society you see um, in Salvation is, is an omnia one set in the future. Um, but there will, there will be many others, put it that way. Okay, so without, without uh, making any implications about other humans that might exist elsewhere in the universe, the, the, the human society that we see in the, fu- in the far future is, a, is an omnia society? M- the majority, yes. Um, I, I know. I think I know what your question's going to be now. But go on. Well, well. So the 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 characters that we follow, sort of the viewpoint characters. Uh, so so they have been engineered back to have to be male and female uh, binary, um, you know, species. Um, yes. Under the presumption that this will make them better soldiers. Um, and it's just the males. You, yes, the the boys. The I was boys. Just where that, that idea came from, or you know, what's it? It's a heart back to to Sparta, if you like, um, that, that they are bred as and their ex- expectation is that they will always be soldiers and they are trained f- practically from birth to be soldiers. The girls are trained to be their um, tactical analysis people uh, to help the boys when they're in combat. So it's a very... Very strange and rigid setup, and they they do start to rebel against it because 
they feel that, that they are just, you know, almost slaves to the to the society, but at the same time, they're desperately needed. Um, it's quite a quandary for them. And the girls, I guess, are genetically engineered to be the more intelligent um, yes, gender. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, they're, they're the brains of the outfit. Which I guess sort of resonates with the, you know, the in current society we have, you know, um, girls outperforming boys in school. And this is sort of sort of an issue that, um, you know, we're kind of grappling with. Uh, yes, it was. It, it's <laughs> I didn't set it up quite as a parody of um, of the current gender wars, if you like, but it certainly it certainly should resonate with people that that people are uh, are being assigned roles whether they want them or not. Uh, and this this will be a theme that that's explored in in the next couple of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so getting back to the the Omnia Society or uh, Utopial Society in the year twenty two oh four, you also mentioned that there's a a wing or a faction that thinks that they need to do even more genetic engineering because uh, since it's this post scarcity society that everyone will just become will fall into decadence, will just become lazy bums if uh, they're fundamental greedy selfish human nature isn't changed yes absolutely um our our nature if you like has has produced the world we live in today um if we ever do the do this thing and, and perfect methods of production methods of food creation um what do we do all day long and and the way we're wired at the moment I'm not sure we could we could take um, a lifetime of doing absolutely nothing. Therefore, we will have to adjust our outlook accordingly. Now, whether you can do this genetically or not, I don't know. I certainly postulated that in the book that once we've achieved this this level of of ability, with with it comes the the option of doing nothing or trying to find something to do. So do we bump up the intellect so that we're always more curious, always more driven? Um, you know, that's a question for, for ethics as, as much as geneticists. But you don't have any strong position on how how much... No, this, again, this is the wonderful get-out-of-science-fiction. <laughs> I, I can ask the questions. I don't necessarily have to answer them. But I, I do think that, you know, we should be looking at these kind of things. I mean, one of the the utopial characters mentions that who's in a, who's in the other faction mentions that people don't just all become lazy bums. That there's just that just the way we're, we're wired as n- now that people generally want to most people generally want to do something with their lives and have some sort of uh, meaning to it, and 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 will pursue uh, you know art and philosophy and and all these things that aren't necessarily that economically viable, but um, you know give people's lives a lot of meaning. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, most people are driven. Um, I, I always, I always get asked what what happens if you don't want to write, and I, I can't quite envisage that. Um, but again, it's degrees. It's it's not everyone. Do you do you genetically change everybody so that everybody is happy? If you have that ability to do so, um, and these things are they're, they're echoes of the questions being asked now. Is is how far do you go? To eradicate um, disease from from embryos, if we can genetically change all the alter all the diseases so that pe- people are born immune to cancer, that's a great start. Um, okay, so do you then want to bump up someone's IQ? And if you're bumping up one person's IQ, do you bump up everybody's IQ? It it opens up this whole nightmare field of of ethics, um, which we're not 
really considering much at the moment what these potential technologies can do for us and, and should we follow them? And does our society's uh, ethics apply to, to other parts of the world? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting field. Right. And I agree that people aren't really thinking about this to the degree that they should. And that I think this stuff is coming much faster than most people realize. Um, there was a book I was looking at recently called The End of Sex. And um, uh, it's a uh, he's a, I think, biology professor at Stanford. But he was making the point that there's something called I think it's called easy PGP. But it basically is going to allow you to um, very easily and cheaply create a whole bunch of embryos and then do genetic sequencing on them and then choose to implant the one with the you know, DNA that you want, with the genes that you want. And yeah. it's, it's going to be cheap enough that any, you know, pretty much anyone is going to be able to do this. And so, yeah, we need to, if we're going to have uh, policies about this, you know, we, we need to figure this out sooner rather than later. Yes. But again, if, if the policy is settled and, and finished, um, it's not going to apply to on a, on a worldwide basis. If, if you disagree with it, um, you can always find a country or or someone who will flout the law for you. It's it's a really difficult subject that, as you say, we're not looking at it closely enough. Right, and I've heard that in in Asia there is much less um, resistance to the idea of genetic engineering of humans. And so, if if the the United States, for example, puts um, limits on it, are we just going to fall behind in this you know emerging biotechnology industry? Yeah, um, you know, people people will travel to get the treatment. We we proved this with with cancer treatments that people will travel and will change their own outlook um, just to get that that cure that's out of reach of them where you are and how much you have. Um, so yes, it's it it opens up. It's it opens up. Um, Basically, every facet of, of a human makeup, if you like, the, the human psyche. Um, what what lengths will you go to to achieve your aims, especially yeah. when your own life is involved? Yeah, or your children, yeah. Or your children. Even, even stronger for your children. People will go to extraordinary lengths to safeguard their children. Right. You said um, in an interview that uh, this book, you say to some degree, it's about the level of trust and mistrust that's developing in the political arena where everyone is suspicious of anyone who isn't on their side. Could you talk about how that sort of informed this book? Um, yes, it's it's basically, um, I, I believe social media has, has really changed the political outlook um, over the last 10 years. Um, it's the it's the evolution of the echo chamber. It's the evolution of of factionism. It's the evolution of intolerance. Uh, everybody is perpetually outraged about anything anyone else ever says at the moment, or so it seems. Certainly, if you're immersed in that uh, social media scrum, um, and I don't think it's particularly healthy. Yes, everyone should get a voice, but I think the way we're channeling it at the moment, which is almost anarchy and a free-for-all, um, I don't think it's doing our political system much good at the moment. Um, there seems to be very little compromise, very little um, understanding of the other guy's point of view, which which can't help us in the long run. So the the politics, not that they're, not that they're hugely prominent in the book, but it certainly forms a background to the society of if, if, if this goes on, um, then 
the extremists will become more extreme, if you like, and people people will not tolerate their neighbours the way they do at the moment, which I think is a terrible thing. So again, it's science fiction looking at, at possible developments and saying, well, if, if you carry on like this, then that is a possibility. I mean, I think there's no doubt that social media is making people angrier all the time. I think that's just a measurable objective fact. Yeah. Um, but I wonder how much of how much of this is driven by technology and it kind of goes back and forth. Because I feel like if you look, if you take the long view, if you look at the era of uh, yellow journalism or something that uh, you had these very uh, vitriolic partisan news sources was pretty much all that there was. You know, every city would have like the, the angry progressive paper and the angry uh, conservative paper or whatever. And I feel like there was a period of time where there were three TV networks and because it was so expensive to run a TV network that they couldn't uh, alienate any substantial fraction of their audience. And so you had this sort of decade, few decades span where, where most people were getting their news from, you know, from not crazy partisan sources. And then the disaggregation that came about with uh, the internet and social media has kind of returned us to the, um, to the era of uh, yellow journalism and, um, in a way yeah um i'm i'm kind of hoping these things go in cycles and that when everyone calms down a little bit um then it will will return to a more norm, more normal stance i mean i've seen this before when uh, back in the 80s this country was was heavily polarized um between people that that believed in Margaret Thatcher and those that hated her, and, and she's still a hugely polarizing figure um then it all sort of calmed down for the for the 90s and and uh, just after the year 2000. Now it's all uh, Brit exit has, has split us up again. Um, so maybe these things do go in cycles, but I certainly think social media's emergence um, amplified the difference this time around. Um, so hopefully hopefully we'll get over it all and learn, and learn to love the internet again. <laughs> um, yeah, it, but it, it is, it, uh, you're right, it does seem to be cyclical. I mean, has that changed the way that you use social media? Are you kind of uh, spending less time on it because uh, it's gotten so nasty? I never spend. I, I certainly never tweeted. I don't have. I don't know how people have the time. Frankly, <laughs> I'm, I'm writing novels and I've got kids, um, and that's about it at the moment. I do Facebook, but not a lot. But I, I do uh, loiter a bit in in friends' uh, columns and blogs and tweets, and a lot of what I see, I, I don't like. Yeah, no. Maybe that's maybe good. that's the solution. Maybe it, it will just repel everybody in the end, and we'll all go back to to calming down and, and being a bit nicer to each other. It's it's the anonymity of the keyboard is the problem. If you, as uh, I'm, everybody knows this, if you had to say to people's face what you say about them online, um, things would would rapidly calm down. No, that's that's. I think that's a wise policy to yeah to write books and and, and focus on your family rather than fighting with people on the internet, uh, especially people you don't even know. Uh, yeah. I mean, whoever changed their opinion by something that was said on the internet? Very few. Now, you just, from your voice, you sound like a very calm, centered person. So thank you. I, I think it's been very salubrious uh, staying away from Facebook. Yeah. Um, I thought this was interesting. You say in the book um, that the Soviet Union assumed the aliens would all be communists. Could you talk about that? Uh, it was something I heard ages ago um, that, uh, that applied in the Soviet era that, that, that 
I mean, it, it goes, this is almost back to echo chamber theory, um, that, that any advanced technology would, would have abandoned the capitalist ethic. Um, therefore, anybody clever enough to travel between the stars would be communist-based. Um, how true it is, I don't know. I, I think that was just part of the propaganda. I mean, this the moon race, don't forget, wasn't a technological race. It was a, it was an ideological one. It was driven purely by ideology. Uh, again, I don't think people have that kind of view anymore. I don't think you can you can put human economic policies onto aliens. I don't think that applies at all. <laughs> but you don't know exactly, like, if there was a particular Soviet figure who said that, or, or where exactly uh, that comes from? No, I I can't remember. I'm sure I'm sure, uh, sure it's down there on the internet somewhere. But I, I do remember hearing it uh, oh ten fifteen years ago and thought oh I can I can use that one day. That's what writers do. You think you're speaking to us and we're not paying attention, but we are. <laughs> I mean, it does seem like there's some level of truth to the idea that. Uh, if we were to encounter aliens, they would have mastered the technology to cross interstellar spaces and therefore would probably be some degree of post-scarcity and would not be, uh, you know, put a lot of stock on, um, you know, material wealth. Um, and that seems like a fairly reasonable um, idea. Yes, you, you, I would contend that if you have the technology to travel between stars, you wouldn't have the kind of economic systems, capitalist or communist, that we have today. And it would be effectively post-scarcity. Um, the, the nature of the aliens, just how alien they are in their thought processes, um, how that, that level of technology would be applied in their everyday society would be utterly fascinating. I really don't think we could compare it to anything we have. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about what is your process for uh, dreaming up alien species? Um, I tend to, to go back as far as I can. I'm, I'm determined that I would never have the, you know, the, the guy in the rubber face mask um, type of alien. I think we're, we're all long past that now. It would, to me, it goes back to their, to their biology, their evolutionary world, if you like, the kind of thing that evolution throws at them. Um, from that would emerge, uh, I try and make it completely different to anything humans would have every time. Um, I just don't think what we have is applicable. I think we're, we're too rooted in our biological nature. I, I don't think we try and look past that often enough. Um, so I have, I think in Great North Road, I have something that is just utterly inexplicable and I never do ex try to explain it. It just exists. Um, which was the Xanth. Uh, in this one, we have, we do meet an alien species that has come to, to this solar system called the Olex, who seem to be quite like us and seem to have a, a goal that we can understand, even if we don't really believe in it. We think what they're doing is quite bizarre. They're just traveling in this huge spaceship to to the end of time. They, they, all they're interested in doing is just traveling and replenishing the the spaceship every time they get to a new star system. So they can just on they can just keep traveling on this pilgrimage to the end of time where they think their God will appear. Um, now, however religious you are, I don't think uh, I don't think humans are ever going to undertake anything like that. Well, it's interesting that the the aliens are are motivated by religion because there's a, a view in in some types of science fiction, like Star Trek, for example, that religion is sort of a um, you know is something that civilizations outgrow at a certain point. Um, we've do you not had, think that that's true. 
we've had an awful long time and we haven't done it yet. Um, some people, uh, atheists or, or religion, uh, you know, we, we've got all sorts. Again, this this goes back down to individuality um, and and stubbornness on some people's part. Um, faith uh, provides a great um, amount of hope to a lot of people. I don't begrudge them that at all. Uh, I, personally, I'm a bit of a skeptic, but I'm I'm prepared to take some things on board. Um, and again, this alien religion is is all down to the the kind of faith they have in themselves, uh, which is which is different to ours. I mean, the way I sort of look at things is that religion has been around for a long time, but that for most of that time, you know, ninety percent of the population was illiterate, um, and so we've only had a few hundred years where where uh, any significant number of people were illiterate, and then with the internet, there's just been this huge increase in um, information and people's ideas clashing. And I, I don't think that, um, you know, looking at the last few uh, millennia is necessarily going to tell us a whole lot about what's going to happen in the next few millennia in terms of how religions, um, you know, persist or don't. Not at all. I mean, like you say, we, we have this this wealth of information which is accessible to, to an awful lot of the human race, not everybody yet. And yet, in in Western countries, we we still have flat earthers. I mean, there's <laughs> there's just no explaining some people. <laughs> yeah, so you think there will still be flat earthers uh, ten thousand years in the future? Um, there might be, but I don't think I'm going to be writing about them. <laughs> I mean, one thing I thought was interesting in this book is that there are um, planets and or battleships named after other science fiction authors. So, like Reynolds, Morgan, Macaulay, and Asher were the ones I noticed. Uh, yes, well spotted. Um, yeah, these the, I, I know these guys, so I, I gave them a name check. Um, relatively harmless ones. Um, yeah, guilty. But those those are just Easter eggs, or do you think that science fiction writers will be so venerated in the future that people in ten thousand years in the future that people will be naming stuff after them? Now that's something I hadn't thought of. Um, we could, <laughs> yes, you know whether they'll treat us like gods, and we will we will be the new religion. Um, I very much doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you want to talk about your, um, you know, how do you know those those authors? Or oh, um, actually, the, the ones you mentioned, we're all pretty much well. We're within ten years of each other in age range. We go to conventions a lot and, and sit up in the bar way too late. Um, they're, they're just they're just nice guys. That I, I I mean, I know a lot more. I don't know how many are going to get name check in book two and book three. Um, but I think most of us kind of get along and sometimes we collaborate and swap ideas. Um, it's, it's, it's quite a nice little, I don't know if it's big enough to call it a society, it's a, a gathering. It's a nice little gathering to be in. We, we kind of share a lot of interests. So meeting up at conventions is always, uh, always good fun. Uh, could you give any examples of how you've uh, collaborated or swapped ideas? Um, I haven't actually collaborated for, for many years, and I did with, with Graham Joyce. Um, Al Reynolds and Steve Baxter have just collaborated on expanding a old Arthur C. Clarke story. Al and I are always discussing whether we should we should write something together, be it a short story or a novel. We've swapped a few ideas around, and... It's basically just a problem of scheduling that we've never got around to doing anything. I think you have to know the people you're collaborating with fairly well um, and understand each other and share the same sense of humor, if you like. Um, 
it's it's something that our our genre seems to do more than any other, which is a, which is interesting. I'm not quite sure why that should be, but um, but certainly it's something I'd, I'd consider doing with Al and and possibly anyone else actually that in that sort of group that I know. But Al Al and I will probably produce something together in the next two or three years. That sounds really cool because because the two of you go on book tours together, right? Um, yeah, uh, well. Yes, I did. I've just done a few dates with Al and, and Steve Baxter this time around. It's based on the, the principle of, of two science fiction authors will bring in a bigger audience than one. Um, and like I say, we know each other in the evening events. We can sort of bounce off each other when we do talks. Um, Al lives about an hour from me, which is nice. Uh, we, we get to meet up very occasionally a few times in the year. It's, it's just a nice, you know, the, the, these guys are my friends. Yeah. I wanted to ask you that... Uh... There are a couple um, books in science fiction history that seems like maybe they're echoing in, in Salvation. And so I was just curious. Uh, I was going to throw out a couple, and you could tell me whether they uh, influenced you or like okay. how much they influenced you or not. Um, so the structure of these um, characters going to explore an alien entity and telling their backstories along the way kind of reminds me of Dan Simmons' Hyperion. Hyperion, yes, very much so. Um, it's one of the reasons I haven't done this structure um, before, um, I liked Hyperion. I think I first came across Simmons mid nineties, late nineties. Um, and it, it is a structure that works very well. And at the time when I was putting this together, which would be seven or eight years ago, I thought, uh, people might think back then that I was just emulating Simmons. Now I'm, I'm 10 years older and, and I've got 22 books and, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this is not something I, I copy. Besides which it, it, it was, it came from Chaucer anyway. Uh, this is what they do on the Canterbury Tales. So I don't think, uh, Simmons or I can either claim originality there. So it, it didn't, it, at this time in my, my, my life and my career, it, it really doesn't bother me that if people think I've copied it, well, no, I haven't. Um, it's just a good way to tell a story. Yeah, no, I mean, it, yeah, it works really well. And I was really impressed by, I won't give any spoilers, but I was really impressed by the end of the book, how everything tied together. Oh, uh, thank you. If people are worried that it's not going to tie together, like everything in this, I, 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 you must have planned this out pretty carefully, um, but it all just fits together so neatly by the end. Yes, thank you. Yes. Uh, and then once you know the ending, apparently, if you read through it again, you can spot even more clues. Yeah, I, I haven't I only read it once, but I, uh, you know, I had underlined a bunch of stuff and I was just going back through the stuff I'd underlined. And, and I did have that same reaction of like, oh, yeah. Oh, OK. I see this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very deliberate. Um, and then I was just going to say the the sort of training children to be soldiers in Zero Gravity reminds me of sort of Ender's Game and the um, characters who cycle back and forth between men and women reminds me of The Left Hand of Darkness. And so I was just curious. what. Oh, that was interesting. I thought you were going to say um, the Culture series by Banks. But yes, uh, Left Hand of Darkness as well. Um, yeah, we um, these things these things are recycled in new forms all the time. Um, uh, I, I hadn't thought of Left Hand of Darkness, actually. Now you mention it. Um, yeah, um, Ender's Game was slightly different in that they were chosen. This is this is a more brutal version um, in that they, they were bored into their roles um, without any choice at all. So, uh, But child, child soldiers are, are a horrible real-life event now, so 
anything that brings attention to that monstrosity is all the better. Uh, I guess that, I mean, from what I remember in the culture series, the characters can change genders pretty easily at will. Um, but the, the reason I thought of left hand of darkness is because they, it's on a sort of a predictable cycle. Um, yeah. from what I remember. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I, I, I shudder to think how long ago it was when I read that. <laughs> um, maybe it was, maybe it was there in my, my subconscious all the time. Who knows? Uh-huh. I saw on the uh, the Reddit AMA you did, um, somebody says that in your foreword to the Forever War, you said the Haldeman story is what got you into writing science fiction? It was a huge influence, yes. I, I That really uh, – when did that come out? Was that late 70s? Possibly you know this better than I do. I, I certainly oh, yeah. remember reading it when I was a lot younger than I am today. Um, yes, it was It was a book that grips you from, from start to finish and, and had such a, a wild timeline in it that, that – this is what science fiction is, I think, was my, my thoughts when I read it. Um, I think he wrote it as a reaction to Vietnam, didn't he? He'd just come back from Vietnam when he did it. Yeah, I don't know if you know all the all his crazy Vietnam stories. I've, I've actually met Joe a few times. He's such a sweet guy, yeah. Uh, like he has the story about throwing – has he told you the story about throwing the grenade? No, I don't think so. Uh, so he's apparently just very, very bad at throwing things. And, um, and so they were, they were doing training with live grenades and they handed him a grenade and he says, I, I don't think I should do this because I'm, I'm really, really bad at throwing things. And, and they basically forced him to. And so he tried to throw it and it basically went up straight in the air and landed among the people who were all standing there. And they all, you know, dove into, you know, foxholes or trenches or something. And unfortunately nobody was injured, but, you know, it was, it was a lot of, it, he has a lot of stories like that. Right. Um, cause yeah, cause I read the forever war as a teenager and then I, I interviewed Joe Haldeman, I don't know, five years ago or something. And I reread it then. I think I reread one of the, at least one of the novellas, the original novellas. And it's just, it's so good. I just could not believe even I had much more appreciation. I mean, I loved it reading it as a teenager, but just going back and looking at it as an adult and, and as somebody who writes science fiction, I was just amazed at how good it was. It, it, it's one of those ones that stands the test of time, which not all science fiction does, but, but that really really can be read now uh, and it's as fresh now as when he wrote it yeah uh, okay so i thought of something i meant to ask you earlier when we were talking about the the authors uh like alistair reynolds so do you given like you said that you you write these giant books and you have children and so on do you have time to to read other science fiction authors like how much um are you able to keep up with what's going on in the field? Oh, very poorly. My my <laughs> to be read pile is is ridiculous, and some of the stuff on there just isn't going to get read. Um, holidays are a good time. I, I will take a, a, a book or two with me to the beach. Actually, when I was on tour last week, I managed to get through uh, most of Stephen Baxter's latest Zeely novel. I've just got to finish off the last bit of that. Um, I, I read as and when I can. Uh, I always say I'm quite well read up to the point at which I started writing, yeah. and then time just vanishes. So I don't read half as much as, as I want to, which makes it difficult because I like to read and see what, what guys I know are, are writing. Um, and there's also so much other good stuff out there as well. It's it's just impossible. Yeah. Um one thing I thought was interesting is that you uh, have a note at the beginning of the book saying that there's this 
music by Steve Buick that people should listen to while they read the book? That's an option, yeah. Um, Steve came to me oh, many years ago and said, do you want to try doing this? And I thought, well, it's not a bad idea. It's, it's ambient music. It's background music that he's written. He gets to see a very, very early version of the manuscript um, and then comes up with this this these tracks. I think it's two or three tracks for this one um, that you just play while you read it. And it's... Um, it seemed like an interesting experiment at the time, and, he, and he's kept on doing it for me. I think I think we're three to four books in now on this. So, what have you gotten response from readers? Did, did you hear from people who who listen to this stuff while they read the books? Uh, to be honest, not much a response. No, I think I think a few people have, have sort of said, "Oh, yes, we downloaded it and 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 listened to it." I um, I think maybe I there might be some reviews online for it. I don't know. I mean, just in general, what sort of feedback do you get from readers? Like when you meet people at um, book signings and stuff, do, uh, uh, is there anything that sticks out in your mind that people um, say to you when you meet them? Um, they're, 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 they're great people, obviously. Um, there's no specific thing. I, I, I often get asked a lot of when are you going back to this world and when are we going to re-see that character, which is always quite flattering, actually, that I've managed to create something they get that involved with that they, they're desperate to see more of. Um, so that, that would be the main thing I take away from it. Um, that and the horribly detailed questions that I always struggle to come up with an answer for, which never <laughs> invariably happens at these things. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's good fun to it, – it is a more personal level of feedback to, to hear what they're interested in and what they would, what they would like more of because that's obviously something that worked. I mean, could you think of an example of uh, like a hyper-specific question that you've been asked? Oh, everybody, uh, every night on this tour I've just done, uh, the question was, "What? When are we going to hear more about Ozzy, who was a major character in the in the last series we did, the Commonwealth books?" So, for for whatever reason, he seems to be a real favorite with people. I was sort of curious reading this book. There are a lot of uh, futuristic weapons described. And I was just curious uh, how you come up with those, or are there, uh, I don't know, are there scientists who talk about futures? It's like sort of like directed X-rays and, and all this kind of stuff. Where does where do those just those phrases come from? They're fairly common uh, extrapolations of what we've got now. I mean, the one thing about X-rays is is that they go through everything. So a, a huge scientific advance, if you like, would be turning them into laser-like beams. Um, which is only something that's going to happen in the future, QED. Um, that's the kind of way my, my brain extrapolates things. So, yeah, we've got lasers, masers, gamma ray lasers, uh, hypervelocity rail guns that are now portable. I mean, these things are huge at the moment. Um, the way you link robots together to make bigger robots that, that are, and then combine the processing power, all this kind of stuff is, is in development or under consideration. Uh, and I just like to try and uh, see where it's come from, where it is. Therefore, I can hopefully make a, a reasonable extrapolation of, of where it's going to go in the future. Is that the sort of thing that you're swapping with uh, Neil Asher and Alistair Reynolds and stuff? We're like, oh, have you heard about the, uh, you know? I don't no, know. actually, we, we, we don't get down into that kind of detail. Um, no, no would be the answer to that. I've, 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 not, I've not swapped weapons tech with anybody. <laughs> I want to keep it all for myself. <laughs> Although Neil does seem to be quite prolific in the weapons he comes up with, it's—I uh, don't know how he does it to that extent. 
Yeah, I just interviewed him a couple weeks ago, and so I read uh, his book, uh, The Gabble and Other Stories. And yeah, there are a lot of cool weapons in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess we could talk a little bit about the characters in this book. Do you want to say, say just who some of the major characters are and what your process was for coming up with them? Um, yes. Uh, okay. Well, we've got one of the main ones is Yuri, who's uh, Yuri Alster, who's um, who's the security guy for Connection. You see him because this, as, as we say, it takes place over at least a century, the uh, the current part of the book. So we get to see him sort of um, as one of the foot soldiers at the start and gradually works his way up to, to head of security. Um, and he had a, before he came into the corporate world, he had a, a slightly dubious intelligence agency background, which makes him perfect for this. Same goes for Callum. Callum, I really like. Callum is the everyman um, that we can all hopefully relate to and that he's, he's just going about his job, which is a fairly high-profile, exciting kind of job. He, he cleans up disasters um, by using portal technology, but then he gets pushed into these situations that he's just not prepared for. Um, and it's kind of what would happen to us if if, if these things happened uh, on on your to your own life. Um, how would you react? Would you be able to cope? Uh, how would you panic? Who do you trust? All these questions are raised up. So that's what Callum has to face. Then um, then we got Kandara, who's basically a mercenary um, who had. Uh, you know, her motivation for this is explored. Why she does what she does is what she doing morally acceptable, um, what it is to her, but not to other people. Um, so yes, those are the those are the main ones, um, backed up by uh, by Jessica, of course, who's who's a bit of an, an enigma. She sort of alternates between our society and this utopian society, switching as it's convenient to her, which is kind of frowned on by both sides, really. Um, always always trying to find the, the right thing to do. So they're basically a, a bunch of everyman people um, that, as I say, hopefully they will carry you through the story. I mean, would it be correct to say that you built the world first and then you're like, okay, I need a representative of connection, I need a representative of, of the utopials and the FBI and the industry and, and so on? Is that kind of how you came up with the cast initially? Um, I always say the... the the characters grow out of the world um, and the world grows out of the plot. It's not in a, in a specific sequence, a one, two, three sequence. These things tend to overlap each other. Um, so I will, if, I, if I'm generating the world, I will see the, the kind of jobs that are in it, like Callum's, for instance. And then I will see, oh, that would fit quite nicely, nicely into this part of the plot, and he could do this, this, and this. So it's it's a more organic process than a linear one, I would say. I guess I'm sort of curious. You know, I haven't read the Commonwealth series. Ah. Could you talk about how this is different from that, and how many I don't know how 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 many different futures, sort of plausible futures, could you dream up? Um, the Commonwealth series started because I wanted to do the old classic, the alien invasion story. I wanted to, to do it with a, with a modern view on it, which, uh, which is what started that off. Um, and again, you have to come up with, with the motivation for this. Um, why, why would an alien species ever make all the effort of crossing the stars to invade a planet uh, that has creatures it's just not compatible with uh, and can't use the planet to live on. Um, so 
that was the the original motivation behind this of just seeing how how people who are not used to extremes suddenly have to find themselves defending themselves and it also raised the 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 ethics question at the end is that is it justifiable to genocide your opposition if they're about to do it to you um could you really do that would you would you would you be aiming for that as a, as a human being? Could you live with doing that? So there's all those sort of questions fed into it as well. And so there are, are there no teleportation gates in that universe? Uh, there are wormholes in that universe to start with, yes. Uh, it, the, it's, it's set over many series. It's set over um, Pandora's Star and Judas Unchanged, which, as I say, are these uh, alien invasion story. Then I did the Void series, which deals with the center of the universe, the, the black hole at the middle, um, is actually something more than the black hole. It's, uh, it's got a strange universe inside where the, the laws of physics that we have here don't apply. Um, and it deals with, with what goes on inside it and how that will affect the galaxy as a whole because it's actually devouring stars faster than an ordinary black hole would do. And then there is the last two books in the series, which is uh, The Abyss Beyond Dreams and Night Without Stars, um, that sort of takes a, another look at the void, but from a very different angle. Uh, it's a more personal angle and deals with with individual consequences of, of the actions that were taken in the previous trilogy, uh, all of which links together into to seven books, although you don't have to have read the first two to read the Void trilogy and, and the same with the end two. Well, I, I, if I haven't said it yet, I really enjoyed Salvation, and oh, I would you. definitely be looking forward to reading more books. So I'll, maybe I'll uh, have time to check those out at some point. But you also, there are two more books in this series coming, right? Do you want to talk about those? Yes, this is this is a trilogy. Um, the second book, Salvation Lost, which I'm about 20 pages from the end of. I am writing it, if my editors are listening. Um, mm. And then after that will come part three, which is The Saints of Salvation, which, which will... Uh, I promise my readers that will tie up the story. It's not going to be suddenly book four and five. <laughs> it, it is a three book series. Well, yeah. So I just everyone, I, I strongly recommend Salvation. It just it ends with a real bang, uh, and I uh, yeah, I, I really really enjoyed that. Um, Peter, are there any other uh, I don't know, just any other uh, thoughts you had or any other projects you want to mention or anything? No, um, I, I'm. I write in a linear fashion. I'm just going to be focused on on book three now for the next year. After that, I'll um, I've got a few ideas I already have. Um, I don't quite know how they're going to play out, but um, for the moment, I'm just concentrating on finishing the Salvation trilogy. All right. Well, I'll let you go so you can write the last twenty pages. Thank of, you, uh, Salvation Lost. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, it's been a great talk. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Peter F. Hamilton for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including B23EE and Gudino. Gudino writes, This is the first podcast to really keep me listening. I'm working my way through the entire episode catalog, currently on episode 177, and I'm not skipping one. Always full of great dialogue, poignant insights, interesting guests, and engaging topics. Will not stop listening as long as it keeps being produced. So big thanks again to Gudino for that great review. Special thanks as well to David Clausen, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks.
And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Robert Collier, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Hank Green for sponsoring today's show. Learn more about his new book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, over at hankgreen.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.